Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to episode 199 of the Great Women in Compliance podcast, co-founded by Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary, and today is my last hosted episode. As you may be aware, we're coming up to 200, which Lisa and I will join on together and we will do another Gwikis session. So fans of Gwikis will hopefully enjoy that. And I thought that I would make my last session a, uh, an, another soliloquy so that I would end off with some thoughts of myself without a guest to wrap up my hosting time on the podcast. So I thought a behind the scenes bit of spilling the tea would be a fun way to end it, except that, frankly, Lisa and I are not the most juicy of people. So I use fun very lightly in terms of how salacious this is going to be, but just to provide a little bit of background, because I know we've told our origin story many times and and shared our thoughts as the, the show began to grow. And I wanted to leverage off that and provide some some different information to give a more holistic view as to what goes on with the podcast front and back. So the first thing I wanted to share was perhaps the most difficult part of the podcast for me. And it's in regards to, as you may be aware, we accept nominations, suggestions or recommendations for people to be featured as guests on the podcast. And it may surprise you, although I'm no longer surprised, that a lot of vendors approach us with suggestions of of people in their organization to focus presumably, you know, these are our marketing or, or PR people and they want to give some exposure to the company and they put forward an, an individual. And this can be a little tricky for us because we've always wanted to avoid the show looking like a, a paid infomercial because of course that's not attractive. People don't turn up here for that. And, and I certainly wouldn't myself. So when it comes to solution providers making recommendations, it can be pretty tricky to make an evaluation. Some of the easier ones though, are when we get blatantly unconnected recommendations. So for example, people not in the, the compliance space, not women, and so we have to respond to, to say that we unfortunately can't see the link between the recommended person and the, the focus of the topics that your suggestion and what our target objectives are. So the approach that I took for the most part was that unless there was a compelling reason, I would really try to go with tried and true speakers that I knew would have value add and speak on substantive topics and not be spending the entire episode hawking their own products or company. And I think that part was not too difficult. It's always difficult saying no and and disappointing people, especially, you know, I got the sense that some felt, you know, like they really should should be on the show. It wasn't so hard in those circumstances, but it was harder if it was people that maybe I even knew that for whatever reason we couldn't 
make a, a match. So for example, people suggesting topics that had already, you know, fairly recently been covered and, you know, getting cross about it. I think that was the the most difficult part, but wanting to make a fine balance between showcasing people, giving people that didn't have a speaking track record an opportunity, as well as keeping the quality of the podcast high, that could be a, a really fine balance at times to maintain. And, and it was a personal struggle in, in terms of that. So I think that's the, the part that I would prepare you for if you were setting up a podcast yourself and, and we're asking what's the hardest part, that would certainly be it. I think one of the funnier ones is the vendors, PR people who are really taking a, a shotgun or as the Americans say, a scattergun approach, whereby they didn't do any kind of research into the show would just be looking for compliance shows and then message Lisa and or myself to introduce us to someone to interview. And it would be someone that we've already interviewed. And a lot of the times we're already even friends with. And so I remember writing back to someone and, you know, basically saying, you know, you may wish to refer back to this person's episode on the podcast. I'm having lunch with them tomorrow. I'll let you know that, that you are in touch. So we probably don't have a whole lot of PR or marketing people listening in, but just in case you are and you're putting someone forward for a podcast, it would be a good idea to search the name of the podcast and the person to see if they've already been on it so that you don't end up looking like a Muppet. Um, the other behind the scenes thing that I wanted to, to mention because it's a little bit unexpected, I suppose, is that sometimes Lisa and I are attending the same conferences and we're in the same room, but sitting far apart from each other. And that is deliberate, not because we want to sit apart from each other, but because Lisa has a preference for sitting further back and I'm total nerd sitting up the front of conferences. So when we are together, it's because one of us is making a concession as to a non-preferred area of the room to sit in. And one of my favorite memories looking back is a conference last year. Lisa had just done a fantastic session with Adam Balfour in the morning and she and I were sitting with each other in the afternoon. I think we were just having a really great time overall at the conference and I was really pleased for her that her session went so fantastically. In fact, Lisa, if you're listening to this, a gentleman that I met up with in the Orange County area for Boston, I'm sorry, not Boston, good grief, for Orange County networking purposes, he mentioned that your session is actually the only one that he remembers going to last year. So I thought that was a fantastic compliment. And Lisa and I sat together and uh, we did a little fist bump. And it's one of my, my favorite memories of our camaraderie and support of each other. As you can imagine, Lisa, Tom Fox, our producer, and I are pretty friendly outside of the podcast. And so while I will definitely say that I will miss working with them on the podcast, the thing is, is that I know that we're going to end up basically continuing to work together in other capacities as well. And so I'm, I'm pleased that that angle won't change. And in fact, the day after this episode airs, Lisa and I will have spoken together on a panel with Colleen Dorsey, moderated by Navex, about networking at the Compliance Week Women in Compliance Summit. And so we will, I think, have some updates on how the conference went in due course. Um, but looking forward to continuing to, to work with Lisa and Tom, even though I, I step off the show. So, you know, in that vein, 
we've provided a lot of support to each other and, you know, we try to do the the episodes in alternate phases. So, you know, Lisa, me, Lisa, me. And if if that pattern is interrupted, it usually means that for whatever purpose, one of us is helping to cover for the other. And so we make switches to support each other when we're not able to stick to the regular cadence. And as a little fun fact, we always look out for each other. And there was a time when we couldn't get separate rooms at a conference. The room rates, the rooms sold out one time. So Lisa and I ended up bunking together for a couple of nights and that went absolutely fine being little roomies for a little bit. So that was my behind the scenes on the podcast looking forward to continuing the relationships after episode 200. Now I wanted to share a little bit about what I've been thinking on in terms of compliance programs and compliance, the state of compliance more generally. So recently I did a little bit of research into self-awareness and I was super interested to find the work of an organizational psychologist called Tasha Urich and her last name is spelt E-U-R-I-C-H if you want to look up a little bit more. And Tasha's work indicates that in terms of humans, we tend to think of ourselves as being pretty self-aware. In fact, 95% of us would evaluate our own selves as being self-aware. The research, however, indicates that the actual number of people who are adept at self-awareness is really around the 10 to 15% mark, which is quite a frightening gulf when you think about it. And the problem is, if you cannot assess where your gaps are or where you're evaluating yourself inaccurately, how are you even supposed to fix them? So I thought about this a lot in terms of, you know, tone from the top, we often think about in terms of the trickle-down effect from top leaders to middle management and, and cascading through the business. But what about our tone as compliance officers? How can we be getting it right with our colleagues if only 10 to 15% of us are actually astute about how we are coming across regardless of our intentions? So fortunately, Tasha has put together a tool to help us and it's a complimentary tool you can find it at insight-quiz.com, insight-quiz.com. And you'll need someone who knows you quite well to partner with you in terms of, of completing the quiz, um, but it should be a good window into some of the blind spots that you may have about yourself, unless you're in that lucky small minority, in which case you may not need much help at all. But it sounds like the majority of us do. So I found that interesting that we all have, a, well, not we all, most of us have a fair amount of work to do in that area. And if we don't know about it, then we're not in a good position to fix it. So take a look and see where you're at. Next up is something that I found surprising as well. The state of compliance survey that NAVEX has done recently, 2023, benchmarking. In terms of risk ratings, it seems that we in compliance rating 
bribery and corruption risks way down the list right now. My speculation on that is covered in a recent FCPA blog article about how enforcement actions are down at the moment, like shockingly down, especially compared with 2020 figures. So it may be that we're going to struggle a bit with buy-in for our compliance resources, particularly budget at the moment, because if the pedal the foot's been lifted off the pedal for compliance from a regulatory enforcement standpoint, then executives may worry a bit less and in turn compliance may worry a bit less. I'm hopeful that, you know, we still have an entire half of the year to go now that we may see some interesting investigations reach their conclusion with regard to settlement. Especially it'll be interesting to see if Uh, there are some settlements where the government gives some commentary on extraordinary cooperation. So that's something that I'm going to be looking out for in the coming months. Another item that I've been thinking on recently is diversity in hiring. Would it surprise you to know that there were job openings in the United States when I was on my search, whereby I met 100% of the requirements for the job, but was unable to submit an application. And that's because the application forms, the uh, ATS system data entry was US centric. So I'll give a couple of examples. In one company, which I'm pretty sure you will be familiar with, an apparel company in the intimate space, was looking for a chief compliance officer. And in order to progress the application, there was a mandatory field where you had to input your GPA. In New Zealand University, we don't use GPAs at all. And so I don't have a GPA to put in there. We grade A, B, and C, and so on. And because it was a mandatory field, I couldn't progress my application without you know, inserting some kind of token placeholder GPA, um, which I struggled with a little bit. And then there's another organization where I was partway through the form fillery and the there was a drop-down mandatory menu where you had to select which university you studied at. And my university wasn't there and neither were the universities of any schools outside of the United States. So even if you were an American who studied abroad for your education, you wouldn't be able to complete this form. As it happened, I was connected with the chief compliance officer who was the hiring manager on LinkedIn. And I reached out to him to let him know that I couldn't progress the application form. And I got a very brief message to say, thanks for letting me know. This is the the email address of the HR person that you can contact about that. I was a little surprised by the response, to be honest, because if someone pointed out to me that uh, my application process prevented someone from moving along, I would have at the very least said, I'm so sorry about the inconvenience. Thank you so much for your interest in us. Please, would you send me your resume directly and I will make sure to take a look at it. So I did email the HR person who sent me an email to say that she thought she'd fixed it and could I go again. So I painstakingly entered all my data and you guessed it, I got stuck again. The question hadn't been fixed at all. So I basically gave up on that particular 
application because I wasn't going to be their guinea pig and and keep expending my time when I didn't really get the sense they were all that interested anyway. But these are a couple of examples of how companies, even really well-intentioned ones that have robust diversity and anti-discrimination statements and declarations can in fact be letting themselves down. It's a little bit like greenwashing in the space. So my call to you, dear listener, is if you're interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion and being part of a diverse workforce, one of the most low-hanging pieces of fruit that you can grab onto right now is to work with your talent acquisition team and run through your, your forms, your hiring forms for applications to check whether all of the mandatory requirements truly are mandatory and where they are mandatory, are you limiting people that may have diversity strands, but the legal right to work in your country? And if so, what can you do to lift those? As a general rule, I would suggest that in order to promote diversity in our organizations, having as few legitimate requirements or mandatory boxes of information is going to broaden the horizons for you. There are very egregious statements made at times that I've seen in headlines about how organizations have said, well, there's, there, you know, there were no good diverse candidates. Well, what if the diverse candidates couldn't even apply? What if you never even saw them in the first place? But also your statement is bollocks anyway. Um, I would suggest, how can there be no good diverse candidates? But to encourage the candidates through the door in the first place, your systems need to be set up to be able to welcome them through the gate because if the gate is shut and locked, then how are you going to see them in the first place? So easy one to rectify there. Review the the forms carefully. Lift the non-mandatory requirements. So there should be as few red asterisk boxes as possible. And I would also suggest that if your requirement is that the person needs to be a lawyer, there is a really good chance that that's not correct. There are so many roles in compliance that you don't need a legal education for. And yet so many roles still require that we be legally trained, have a JD or be admitted to a bar in good standing. There are very, very few roles in my belief that genuinely require you to be a compliance counsel. Just because you've chosen to give it that title doesn't mean the actual role requires the legal skill set. And in fact, I would argue that sometimes when we wear our lawyer hat, it makes us less effective as compliance people. So thinking about how we write our policies, for example, if you write in legalese, that is going to be a gross policy that is not going to be user-friendly for our audience. So I may be preaching to the converted here in this group, but one day I have a dream that, that job descriptions for compliance folk will not require legal educations in the absolute overwhelming majority, if not all cases. And again, I point out that many of the greatest chief compliance officers in existence in our field today are people that do not have law degrees. So uh, if you're able to take a look at your ATS system requirements in conjunction with your HR slash uh, talent acquisition team. I think that would be a worthwhile exercise so that one day you and I can work together perhaps. 
And the final thing that I wanted to chat about in today's session is ephemeral messaging or off-channel policies. So just as a recap, the US government in particular actually historically has been interested in this if you're in the financial services field of, of prohibiting business communications on off-channel communications and keeping to business-sanctioned forms of communication like your company email, for example. Um, so this is kind of old hat for our financial services colleagues and to you, I apologize. What for you is very basic amateur stuff here, but for a lot of the rest of us is relatively fertile new ground. And so we look to learn from you and your best practices for advice and what has worked in this area. I ran a poll on LinkedIn recently to check in on the progress of where we're at in terms of implementing off-channel communications. So the statistically significant, because exactly 100 people responded, results are 24% of res respondents indicate that they have implemented an off-channel or ephemeral messaging uh, comms policy. 31% are currently working on it, meaning that the majority of organizations at 55% have either implemented or are currently working on it. And in terms of companies that have taken no action yet, uh, the response is 41%. So if you're in the 41% that haven't made a start, the good news is that it's not just you, you're not alone. And hopefully you can use the fact that 55% of organizations are already working on this as a way to persuade and get buy-in for your company making a start on it if there, there hasn't been an appetite for it. I think the expectations have been pretty strong in this area, and I was very pleased to hear at the Compliance Week conference a gentleman from the DOJ discussing that there was no expectation that privacy rights of employees be violated in this process. And I know that was a huge concern for a lot of compliance folks. So still think the enforcement angle is going to be the hardest bit, but let's cross that bridge when we come to it. The first thing that we need to do is put in place a program, communicate, train on it, encourage our colleagues to refer to it when they need to. That's the bit that we really should be focusing on now. And then in, in time, we'll need to, to think about what are we going to do when it comes to enforcement? Because in my mind, that is the most complex and, and complicated question that we have to deal with. It's the biggest challenge. But again, maybe the financial services organizations will be in a good place to help lead the way for those of us in other industries. So that concludes my thoughts at the moment. I hope it's been somewhat interesting and if you didn't agree with anything, at least thought-provoking as we uh, wrap up this episode. So thank you all for your time and attention, dear listener. It's been an absolute honor and a privilege. And I look forward to seeing you for the Gwikis next week. Until then, take good care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.